Hey there, poemcasters. Does that sound like Jeremy? No. Is that close? <laughs> Not even close. A hey. little bit close. Hey there, poemcasters. Whoa, that. Okay, come on. I'm not that high pitched. Oh, sorry. All right. Anyways, on this episode, we're going to talk about procalcitonin. <gasps> All of our veteran providers know plenty about procalcitonin. It's elevated in bacterial infections and is generally used to guide antibiotic use. Yep. No effect on mortality and hopefully can reduce antibiotic days. Tons of systematic reviews every few years. Nothing new to see here. Not so fast. Hey, not so fast. You like my Lee Corso impression? Any culture ball fans out there? Uh, I'm a millennial, so... It's on the TV, on the cable? I don't know ESPN. who that is. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, all right. Fair enough. But that said, before the veteran provider listening to this podcast just turns it off, just researching for this episode, I have learned a ton about procalcitonin. And just talking to various providers in our group over the last couple of months, just thinking through different ideas, I realized I don't think all of us know everything we need to know about procalcitonin. So I'm going to do a little quiz with you guys and see. You ready? All right. Sure. All right. What type of infections has procalcitonin been studied in? You said bacterial earlier. Do you mean all bacterial infections? Pneumonia? Sepsis? What about UTIs? What do you, what you got? My knowledge of procalcitonin is in pneumonia. Uh, also in sepsis, I've not read anything about procalcitonin in UTI, though anecdotally, I've seen it elevated in most bacterial sepsis badness, regardless of the source. Okay, you did, you did okay. I will throw one at Rachel. Sometimes yeah. I see people checking procalcitones every single day or even churning them serially every few hours like lactate. How frequently should we be checking them? I mean, I think it's important to take along with the entire picture. It, if you have an increasing procalcitonin and worsening sepsis picture, you strongly suspect there's a bacterial component. Commit. Make a commitment, yeah. Are you going to trend it or no? Yes. Daily? Yes. Commit. Every six hours like lactate? Every two. <laughs> Every two hours? Don't do that if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> Titrate norepinephrine for a decreased procalcitonin. <laughs> Is All right, that the so correct Jeremy, answer? All right, so Jeremy, you say there's no mortality benefit. Are you sure about that? Are you really sure? And the way you're asking the question makes me feel like I shouldn't be sure, so I'm going to go ahead and hedge and say it's in. It's we're studying it. So you don't know is what you're saying. <laughs> so, but if if what you're saying is right and there's no mortality benefit, then what's the point? What are we using it for? To help reduce antibiotic days. Okay, not a bad answer. Was re a reduction in antibiotic days seen in all studies, all types of procalcitonin use? That I know is not true. I don't know more, but I know it's not true. So why don't we look to see what the literature has to say about procalcitonin. Does all this we've been talking about bear out in the studies? It always makes perfect sense until you study it. So when researching this, procalcitonin has been crazy overstudied and talked about over the last 10 years and maybe i'm just naive enough to think us sifting through all those studies together is going to help someone else get pointed in the right direction so just looking at the number there was over 3,000 studies published on procalcitonin since 2004 not only has there been 3,000 studies but there has been over 25 meta-analyses since 2009 so there's a huge amount of material I did not sift through all of it, full disclosure. So let's see if we can get you guys pointing in the right direction on ProCal. That's a noble mission, so let's see what we can do. All right, I got one more thing. It's clear that it's not clear that the evidence shows what we should do with ProCalcitonin, and we're not super familiar with it. 
You've proven that. But despite that, how many patients are you guys ordering on a day? Honestly, I am not ordering it on that many patients because half the time it's already ordered. And not only is it ordered, it's ordered for on admission and then somebody put it in for the day after and the day after that. So So let me rephrase. Is it ordered on most of the patients you are seeing? Yes. So it just begs the question, are we overutilizing procalcitonin or maybe we're ordering it in the right frequency, but we don't know how to interpret it? But that, that is an extremely valid point. We are likely overutilizing procalcitonin or we're simply not using it correctly enough. Or both. Maybe you're in that boat. So let's all learn about it. All right. So we'll start off with procalcitonin is a 116 chain amino acid polypeptide. Whoa. Are you going to do the pathophys review? Yeah, I didn't think you knew enough on this topic based on those questions. Mike, drop. Well, this is where I'll trick you. Procalcitonin is a propeptide that's processed into the hormone calcitonin. When you aren't sick, your body produces procalcitonin from the thyroid. Really? From the thyroid? I haven't heard that in any of the endo sections in school. Right. Well, that's probably because we don't know what its role in healthy patients are, except as a precursor to calcitonin. But remember, in infection and sepsis in general, there's a whole lot more that your thyroid produces besides procalcitonin. But we still don't know what its role in the body's response to infection is. That's fascinating, isn't it? It is. We don't know in healthy or not healthy patients what it's for. Mm. But we're using it. So what tissues produce procalcitonin? A lot. Liver, lung, intestines. A lot of those are cited, but there's a lot of other tissues as well. And we don't know what the dominant tissue that actually produces procalcitonin is. So procalcitonin you can consider as part of the various labs that we call an acute phase reactant, similar to CRP and ESR that we're much more familiar with from school. It's induced by cytokines, including TNF. Good old tumor necrosis factor. And IL-6. Good old interleukin-6. Right. Activating monocytes promotes an increase in procalcitonin. All this talk about cytokines, just great. Interestingly, another cytokine called interferon gamma, which is released during a viral infection, suppresses procalcitonin. Uh, Okay, I see where this is going. So let's apply all that pathophys to real life. Not so fast. We need to talk about kinetics to understand when to order this test. All right, fine. An increase in procalcitonin is much more rapid than other labs of similar concepts such as a CRP. Is significantly elevated somewhere between 2 to 12 hours after a bacterial infection, with most papers quoting somewhere around the 6-hour mark being a pretty good standard. Peak levels are typically reached at 24 to 48 hours after a bacterial infection. So how is it cleared or decreased? There is some renal clearance. I knew it. But it's mostly broken down from peptide to amino acid by enzymes. The renal clearance is a smaller factor than most labs are familiar with. Interesting. Can we move on to how this applies to clinical practice now? Yeah, you're so quick to leave the path of fizz. It's just getting good. <laughs> Whatever. Let's do it. So let's review what we know about procalcitonin based on its pathophysiology. It should be elevated primarily in bacterial infections around six hours after the infection and peaking at about 24 to 48 hours. And because it is broken down by enzymes and not really by renal clearance, it should decrease regardless of the patient's organ function at regular intervals. So even if you have renal dysfunction or liver dysfunction, it should still be broken down. Now, that makes a lot of sense how ProCal should work from a pathophys standpoint, but is that shown out in all the studies? It always makes perfect sense until you study it. Let's dive in. <laughs> 
let's talk about why it matters. Let's back up a bit, talk about how it actually works. We all know that procalcitonin matters in reducing antibiotic use. True, but it can't hurt to give a little reminder as to why that matters so much. Reducing antibiotic use isn't just some vague suggestion we can ignore, like recycling. Ouch, Rachel. Ignores recycling? On second thought, maybe it's exactly like recycling. It's extremely important, but the negative results you would see from it feel vague and too long-term to matter to you in the moment. That's really deep. Much deeper than something John could have produced. (laughs) We're glad you're on the show today. Unpack that a little bit, though. It's considered a global health priority to reduce antibiotic use by numerous international organizations like the CDC, WHO, American College of Physicians, NQF, NICE, and many more, but we stopped looking at those. Yeah, that was enough. That was a lot of acronyms. Now, particularly amongst lower respiratory tract infections, obviously if the patient has an pneumonia, they need antibiotics. But how many people are still giving antibiotics to patients who have pure bronchitis? Oh, I got this one. I do bronchitis lectures at several of the local PA programs. This is my main take-home point. There is really strong recommendations from the CDC and other organizations not to give antibiotics in acute bronchitis. Some surveys have noticed around 50% of providers still giving them. And what's worse is that the percentage of those antibiotics that are broad-spectrum has increased majorly over the past 10 to 20 years. It's easy to see how procalcitonin could play a huge role in reducing antibiotic overuse. But why is overusing antibiotics harmful? We all know the main take-home point about excess antibiotic use is carrying risk of increasing bacterial resistance. And the ever-present risk of C. diff. All right, so let's transition a little bit and start talking about procalcitonin and its various different uses. The first one we're going to talk about is respiratory infections. It's FDA-approved to aid in the decision-making of antibiotic therapy for inpatients and outpatients with suspected lower respiratory tract infections defined as either CAP, community-acquired pneumonia, acute bronchitis, or exacerbation of COPD. So not just pneumonia. I think that's a really interesting take-home point here. Also things like bronchitis and COPD exacerbations. Right. I think most people, when they hear about the respiratory indication for Procal, they're thinking about pneumonia. But before we get too ahead of ourselves, it's best to think of procalcitonin in terms of when it should be used. It's studied in both initiation or discontinuation of antibiotics. So let's focus on initiation first. Initiate the initiation section? We should have known that joke was coming. Shall I discontinue the jokes? Oh, let's just de-escalate them. Too much broad-spectrum joking going on. I guess I'll have to carry this part. (laughs) Back to initiation. Probably the main trial to talk about first came out in JAMA in 2009, and it was called PROHOSP. It was a non-inferiority study which essentially established our baseline procalcitonin thresholds and timeframes. It used a procalcitonin protocol that is the most commonly cited procalcitonin protocol we could find. We will link it in the show notes, but basically, if ProCal was less than 0.1, antibiotics were strongly discouraged. They were discouraged at less than 0.25. But not strongly so? No, just regular discouraged. Antibiotics were started on patients above 0.25. So if antibiotics were withheld, they rechecked procalcitone levels at 6 hours up to 24 hours. So that was the initiation piece of that study. The study also looked at discontinuation. All patients were reassessed to follow resolution of their infection at three, five, seven days and at discharge. Procalcitonin was drawn at each of those day marks and antibiotics were discontinued based on those same numbers. So let's simplify it a little bit. 
If your procalcitonin is less than 0.25, antibiotics were either withheld to start with, or if you were already on them, they were discontinued. Being a non-inferiority study or just establishing the protocol could work. They met their endpoint, but many more studies on procalcitonin were to follow. I'm like a kid on Christmas. What study are we going to talk about next? Well, let's pick one of the big meta-analyses. Dr. Schutz et al. has published several of these, including a large Cochrane review, which he has revised in October of 2017. It includes data from 26 randomized control trials from over 6,700 patients. So across all those studies in their review, the overall quality of evidence was high for mortality and antibiotic exposure in acute lower respiratory tract infections. That's really interesting that they got a reduction in mortality and antibiotic exposure. You're right that most meta-analyses in RCTs when looking, especially at the critical illness component of procalcitonin, which we're going to talk about next, did not necessarily have a mortality benefit. But in this particular large meta-analyses, it did achieve mortality benefit, important to note for specifically acute lower respiratory tract infections. Now, the one thing I do want to know is that all of the lower respiratory tract infections, like just pneumonia, or was it COPD, bronchitis, so on and so forth? Was it everything? Yes. Even when looking at specific lower respiratory tract infections, such as COPD exacerbation and bronchitis, they found a high grade of evidence for mortality benefit. Wow. So let's talk about that for a minute. In most of these procalcitonin trials, lower respiratory tract infections are all lumped together. So in general, community-acquired pneumonia makes up the largest portion of these patients. This leads to the findings being less confident in the smaller specific populations like COPD exacerbations and bronchitis. True. But when you do look at those subgroup analyses, the numbers for COPD exacerbation and bronchitis are very impressive, especially when thinking about reducing initiation of antibiotics. I think COPD gets interesting because antibiotic use for COPD gets debated not infrequently amongst our own pulmonologists, and I imagine pulmonologists around the country. Perhaps the main thing that we're doing is using antibiotics for their anti-inflammatory properties without necessarily realizing it. It's very possible. When you get down to the individual studies on procalcitonin and COPD, you start to see some of them not show benefit to withholding antibiotics and that anti-inflammatory property may be the reason why. While the evidence for procalcitonin and COPD exacerbations isn't what we want it to be, it's got to be better than the old tried-and-true, did your sputum change color or is the amount increased? Probably, but that's hard to say for sure, too. It's probably best to use it in addition to your clinical findings, of which those two you just gave are two of the big ones in COPD exacerbations. Why not both? Exactly right. What about acute bronchitis? not associated with COPD, the one ain't nobody got time for. (laughs) Yes. The individual studies and the meta-analyses for bronchitis had the same issues as COPD. Community-acquired pneumonia was the majority of patients in the study, so bronchitis was a smaller percentage of their cohorts. That being said, when looking at the subgroup analyses again, for these papers, antibiotic use reduction was anywhere from 36 up to 80%. Hmm. Should we be checking procalcitonins on patients with bronchitis? I mean, those are pretty impressive numbers. Well, that's where it gets interesting. No one is recommending that specifically, and we haven't really seen this takeoff in the office setting. Reasoning being you shouldn't be giving antibiotics for bronchitis anyways. So why would you need a test to tell you what you already know you shouldn't do? That's an excellent point, but people are still prescribing them every day anyways. So maybe we should start doing more procalcitonins in the office. 
I mean, that's totally reasonable in the hospital setting when you have access to a procalcitonin. But it doesn't look like it's coming to offices near you despite being fairly inexpensive to run and fairly quick to turn around. Due to recommendations to not give antibiotics anyways, the demand to do this in the office just doesn't really seem to be there. One thing I find as an interesting thought experiment is the possibility of a patient presenting with bronchitis to whom you'd never give antibiotics to for classic, you know, wheeze, post-tussive, coughing, and they have a procalcitonin that's 0.3. Do you find yourself now in a position where you would give antibiotics to a patient that you wouldn't previously? Or does that 0.3 push you over the edge just far enough to consider them? Or do you throw the test result away and say, well, I'm just going to trust my clinical judgment? I would say that patient is so far into their illness, it is really hard for you to know what to do with that procalcitonin level of 0.3. What was it when they first got infected with bronchitis? Was it 0.7? Was it, if it was something significant and you had actually drawn it, then it could be reasonable. But I think you're so far out removed from when they originally got sick, it's really hard to know what to do with that number, and you almost have to throw it out and use your clinical judgment. Yeah. I mean, I just wonder if it, if we were to routinely draw it in the bronchitis examples, if uh, we would see a trend. Because you presume the patients who had bronchitis who had a procalcitonin drawn in the studies, they were probably a relatively ambiguous picture to begin with right. that they were drawn. So we're nearly finished with the respiratory section of the podcast, and we've talked about what protocol to use or how to use it in lower respiratory tract infections. What about patients with, say, undifferentiated dyspnea? The classic scenario, the patient in the ED who's got dyspnea and a vague history of heart failure. The radiologist says that the chest x-ray is dreaded bilateral pneumonia versus alveolar interstitial infiltrates and could not be more vague, wrapping up with a clinically correlate. Cards and pulmonary locked in a standoff outside the patient's room deciding whose organ's fault it is. Procal could help here, though, right? Well, sort of. There are a few observational studies that suggest a higher median procalcitonin in patients with pneumonia who presented to the ED with dyspnea compared to those who presented to ED with dyspnea who were diagnosed with heart failure. But observational studies of procalcitonin levels is far from definitive evidence. So while the classic cards versus palm cage match isn't going to be ended overnight with procalcitonin, it's another spot where it's a useful tool in your toolbox to add to your clinical suspicions. Did you mean thoracic cage match? Oh, uh, so clever. <laughs> we have a late-breaking additional paper to add to this podcast under our low respiratory tract section. A recent paper was published in Critical Care Medicine in October 2018 showing potential harm in patients admitted to the ICU with severe COPD exacerbations, that antibiotics were either not started on or were discontinued based on procalcitonin. Huh, that's interesting. Oh. So what's our takeaway here? Do we continue to treat patients with severe COPD exacerbations that require ICU admissions, kind of like we always have? Start the antibiotics regardless of the procalcitonin? Is that the... Yeah, I think this this paper just came out recently, so I haven't heard a ton of commentary yet, and we haven't talked to our whole group kind of about what their thoughts are. But my early take is if you're if you're getting admitted to the ICU with a severe COPD exacerbation on BiPAP or intubated, then we should just continue doing what we've always done for those patients: IV steroids, NEBS, antibiotics. And I think this probably hints to the fact that 
antimicrobial populations in the lower respiratory tract that aren't necessarily meeting a threshold for infection per se, like fever and, and all of the traditional things that we see, could still be enough to set off somebody's COPD and bronchospasm and sputum production to a point where it's harmful for them, even though it's not the classical, you know, disseminated bacterial pneumonia that we may classically see elevations in procalcitonin. Right. So we've talked a ton about lower respiratory tract infections and procalcitonin. What about sepsis? Procalcitonin has been studied pretty extensively in sepsis as well. Just to clarify, sepsis does not have the initiation data that lower respiratory tract infections do. Due to the timeliness of antibiotic administration in sepsis, it was not studied and it's not recommended to withhold antibiotics while waiting on a procalcitonin on a patient you think is septic. So just to clarify, if we have a patient who comes in with undifferentiated sepsis and maybe even they're on the borderline, we don't necessarily know whether or not we should start antibiotics. The recommendation here is just start the antibiotics. Don't wait for the procalcitonin. Right, right. Where sepsis does have similar data, though, in an antibiotic discontinuation is the SAPS trial. That's a decent study name. More specifically, it has some meta-analyses that were looked at and some individual studies that showed a reduction in antibiotic days, just like we saw in lower respiratory tract infections. The cutoff for discontinuation in the sepsis meta-analyses was 0.5 rather than the 0.25 seen in lower respiratory tract infections, owing to the fact that these patients presumably had higher initial procalcitonins. So we're pulling this data primarily from the LAM systematic review that was published in Critical Care Medicine in 2018. We'll link it in the show notes. It's a pretty solid meta-analysis looking at 15 studies and encompassing more than 6,000 patients. The LAMP study in critical care medicine found lower short-term mortality when providers would use procalcitonin to guide the cessation of antibiotics. But they did not see any reduction in mortality when providers would use procalcitonin on guiding initiation of antibiotic therapy. So to reiterate, good discontinuation data, but not initiation data. Bingo. Exactly. But let's talk about clinical application. Based on this data, we can use procalcitonin to guide discontinuing antibiotics if procalcitonin drops below 0.5. And that also means we can assume our overall treatment of sepsis for them is working similar to lactate clearance. If the initial procalcitonin doesn't decrease by 80% or the procalcitonin increases, that would indicate treatment failure based on the studies. In clinical practice, an increase in procalcitonin might lead me to want to change the patient's antibiotics or maybe change some other portion of the patient's sepsis care. Have they been resuscitated appropriately? Do I have source control? Is the patient maybe persistently bacteremic or starting to become bacteremic are some of the questions I might ask. That's a great way to think about this clinically. It's also a perfect segue into procalcitonin and risk assessment in sepsis. Earlier, we mentioned that procalcitonin can be used in risk assessment for sepsis. How do we do that? It's been shown to predict mortality and specifically treatment failure in sepsis over many studies, which we will link in the show notes. If there is a lack of decrease by 80% over a 72-hour period, then that is associated with higher mortality, even independent of other ICU prognosticating risk scores. Dr. Schutz apparently loves procalcitonin. Around the time he was revising his Cochrane review, he published a study on procalcitonin in sepsis called the Moses Study in Critical Care Medicine in 2017. You're always a sucker for good study names. Hey, Moses is a solid study name. 
Essentially, it was a large multi-center prospective observational study that found kinetics and procalcitonin over the course of the first four days in sepsis were predictive of survival. Now, remember, the ability of procalcitonin to predict survival, or, or in this case, I suppose, mortality, was independent of all other mortality predictors in the intensive care unit. This includes scores like Apache 2, the SOFA score, and other sepsis indicators of severity, and, and many more. I mean, that's cool data and all, but what do we do with this study? Well, the Moses study is interesting because it got thrown into a now very famous and controversial study. That's the Merrick protocol for vitamin C, thiamine, and hydrocortisone. So I personally, before looking through this material for this podcast, did not know that the Merrick study included the Moses sort of protocol in his own vitamin C, hydrocortisone, thiamine protocol. So he, just to clarify, actually used procalcitonin to guide, sounds like his discontinuation of antibiotic therapy or identification of treatment failure for these patients. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So I, I forgot too until kind of researching for this script, but Dr. Merrick used a procalcitonin level of two to decide who got his Merrick cocktail based on this Moses study. That's 2.0. Right. And so if patients had a procal of two or greater, uh, based on the Moses study, they have an increased risk of mortality independent of other risk factors. So he felt like that patient was a sick enough patient to get the Merrick cocktail. If your procal was less than two, then in his study, you did not receive the Merrick protocol. So like this is way different than traditional utilization of procalcitonin, right? In my training, we talked through a cutoff somewhere in the neighborhood of 0.2, 0.25, maybe even 0.5, but Merrick is putting it all the way up to 2.0. Right. And so he's using sepsis risk assessment data, granted extrapolating it a couple of steps further. I think base, if you want to say based on the procalcitonin literature, I think all you can safely say is if your procalcitonin is greater than two, that you have a higher risk of mortality from sepsis. He gotcha. took that extra leap and gave the patient a treatment that fell into that category. Now, I want to clarify what, what was the treatment that they got. This was not withholding antibiotics. This was who received the vitamin C hydrocortisone thiamine, right. is what you're saying. Uh -huh. So he did not use a cutoff of 2.0 to initiate antibiotics in this study. Good point. No, he didn't was adding additional therapy to the sicker patient cohort. So should we be doing that? I mean, I know this is all before, after, and this is just a study protocol, so this is not necessarily practice changing, but should we be using the procalcitonin of two as a decision for uh, who is sicker in sepsis and that they should get advanced care versus those who are not as sick? So I think it's important to remember that the Moses study is a purely observational study, so I think you should use this procalcitonin risk assessment with the greater than two as another tool in your predicting mortality toolbox as an ICU provider and treat the patient accordingly. As in? As in don't use it as your end-all be-all in deciding when and where to treat a patient or what level of treatment they should require. Didn't Merrick kind of do that? Yes, he did kind of do that. We're not really going to take a deep dive into the Merrick protocol today. Although we've had some people ask us to do that before, uh, it's obviously a famous and controversial study. Uh, I would take up a lot of time to talk about it. And I, I do feel like plenty of people in the online foam community have done probably a much better job than we could on discussing this study 
including there's several things out there from Paul Merrick himself. And so we'll kind of link some of that and let the listener decide for themselves what they think about the study. So hopefully the risk assessment portion of his protocol is studied more. We know there's a Victus trial that's ongoing. That's a randomized control trial looking at the Merrick protocol. So hopefully we get some more answers on utilizing this procalcitonin greater than two. I imagine that using procalcitonin to, as an identifier who's sick, I, I have to look at specifically what the sensitivity specificity was based on the Moses study. I'm sure you'd miss out on a population who have sepsis that's not necessarily due to a severe bacterial infection, right? Because it's all immune response. It's not just uh, how bad the bacterium is in your body. Right. So I definitely think, let's say you had a, a very sick patient with a lactate of 10 that's on pressors. If their procal is less than two, I don't think that should change anything about your management of that patient. Continue right. to treat them as aggressively as you would a regular sepsis patient. It is just another tool in the toolbox per but se. perhaps the patient with the lactate of, say, two, who's hemodynamically stable with severe sepsis with a lactate of three, may give you more pause to think through, hey, is this a you know patient who's actually going to become very sick right, need yeah. to worry about? So that's kind of why, how I'm thinking about it. Spend more time on that patient on the border if their procal is elevated and makes you worried about their mortality risk. Why don't we talk about location of testing? And what I mean is location in terms of geography within the hospital. We've naturally covered intensive care units and sepsis, but is procalcitonin helpful in all locations in the hospital? And my second question is, for my outpatient providers out there, is procalcitonin helpful in the outpatient environment too? Well, that is a really good and loaded question. Yeah, sorry. I'll try to answer some of it a little bit. We had a recent study that came out in New England Journal of Medicine, kind of a big deal, looking at procalcitonin specifically in the ED called the PROACT trial. We'll link it for those interested in reading it. This is a big trial for procalcitonin because it's a large multi-center randomized control trial. While procalcitonin has plenty of studies, most are systematic reviews and not large RCTs published in the highest impact journals. Unfortunately, this is kind of a negative trial for procalcitonin, or I guess not unfortunate. The data is what it is. This study found that using a procalcitonin strategy did not reduce antibiotic days or have differences in adverse events. And to remind you, this is in the ED population. So this can definitely be taken as a negative study towards procalcitonin, especially when most of the systematic review data says procalcitonin is best used for discontinuation of antibiotics. But let's get into it a little bit to figure out why it didn't get the outcome we expected and the authors expected based on previous studies. They looked specifically at patients that presented to the ED with a suspected lower respiratory tract infection and for whom the treating physician was uncertain whether antibiotic therapy was indicated. The primary endpoints of what the study was geared to detect was antibiotic days and percentage of patients with adverse outcomes. And it was a pretty large study as far as RCTs go. We had 1,600 patients across 14 large urban academic centers that all had good adherence to pneumonia core measures. So these are hospitals that you think would already be doing a good job with things like antibiotic stewardship. Maybe that contributed to the negative results as well. 
Clinicians adhere to the procalcitonin guideline recommendation 73% of the time in the procalcitonin group. Although, interestingly, when you broke adherence up to the type of lower respiratory tract infection, community-acquired pneumonia had the lowest adherence at 39%. When antibiotics were prescribed despite low procalcitonin levels, the reasoning given was that the clinician still felt a bacterial infection was likely present. So this study did not force clinicians in the procalcitonin group to stop antibiotics based on the ProCal level. They educated physicians on the trial and ProCalcitonin in general and then gave them that choice. While this certainly limited their ability to get a positive result, it actually closely mimics real life and what a true rollout of a quality measure change in modern healthcare looks like. So I'm not sure you could say that's a negative against the study on how they rolled it out. Yeah, I agree with that. It's, it would mirror what happens in real life, but I, w- I would have loved to see if strict adherence mm-hmm. to the procalcitonin protocol would have resulted, you know, against our own better judgment and better outcomes. Right, because if only 73% of the time they adhered to the guideline, that's 25% of that procalcitonin group that the providers were doing usual care, i.e. the other control arm. One of the interesting pieces of data is that the average antibiotic days for both groups so both the procalcitonin discontinuation group versus the standard of care group, only four days. Four days of antibiotics in this ED population. And to me, this reflects a large percentage of the patients having perhaps something like COPD or maybe acute bronchitis or some other indication for antibiotic therapy, not a super long course like 7 or 10 or 14 days. This trial being conducted in hospitals with excellent pneumonia quality metrics also makes you wonder. The effect of adding procalcitonin to an already robust system really doesn't add much. Perhaps these providers were already taking steps to limiting antibiotic overuse and stopped antibiotics earlier than we traditionally did. And I think that's a very real possibility. You know, we look at some of the other trials that did get a positive result and this trial didn't. I think we are certainly more cognizant of reducing antibiotic exposure today than even, you know, a few years ago, or even when I first started practicing. I think you have to look at the fact that they focused on patients who there was a true clinical question on whether or not antibiotics should be used in that patient. So they weren't necessarily picking patients where it was a slam dunk, they had pneumonia, or patients where they clearly didn't. They were truly looking at patients where they weren't certain. And these patients hadn't really been studied all that much in the procalcitonin literature, outside of a few observational studies that we already talked about earlier. So perhaps this is another example that that patient where you're on the fence about antibiotics isn't really the type of patient population we should be using procalcitonin on. It's a shame because intuitively, I mean, that's where it makes the most sense. To use procalcitonin on patients, you are decided on whether or not they need antibiotics, but that hasn't been shown to be the best patient population to use it on in the literature. So does this trial change everything we've talked about earlier with regard to procalcitonin and lower respiratory tract infections? I think it's hard for any trial to change everything we thought about. Well, pretty much anything. But to answer that question, I really don't think so. I think this trial adds to the fact that using procalcitonin as your only guide to initiating or even discontinuing antibiotic therapy probably isn't helpful, especially in the patients who aren't clear. The unfortunate thing is that I was taught procalcitonin was the differentiator, right? It was the differentiator between if you're on the fence and a patient needs antibiotics versus they don't, procalcitonin will be your magic genie. And I think if anything, this trial is showing us that that's definitely not true. 
I think the take home though is that we should still use procalcitonin in helping us to reduce antibiotic days in patients that I am convinced have an infection. And that includes both sepsis and lower respiratory tract infections. All right, so we've talked about the ED. What about outpatient? In doing a literature search, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot yet in the outpatient world. There are several economic studies which show it would be economical to use procalcitonin in the outpatient settings, and there are a few non-inferiority trials that show it's non-inferior to usual care, but the data is not yet robust in the outpatient world. Our outpatient pulmonary team is not currently using procalcitonin on an outpatient basis. So if anyone out there is in an outpatient setting and is using procalcitonin to guide their own therapy and how they treat patients, why don't you drop us a line and we would love to hear about your experience. So we've talked a lot about bacterial infections elevating procalcitonin and what we can utilize it for. We've heard there are other things that can cause it to be elevated, so let's talk about some of those. Sure. Cancer is one of the most common people think of, most particularly cancer with multiple metastases or neuroendocrine tumors. I thought this was interesting. Medullary thyroid carcinoma, or islet cell tumors, can have huge elevations in procalcitonins. Greater than 10,000 have been seen before. That would certainly be the highest I've seen if I came across one of those. Others that I would think of are trauma, burns, multiple organ failure, and recent major surgery. And really, in all of those circumstances, the procalcitonin should start to fall as the insult gets better. What's the highest procalcitonin you all have ever seen? I've seen a few in the 300s. 300? Yeah. Woof. A couple. Man, I thought I had you be. I had like 210 yeah, the other day. Yeah, I've seen yeah. I think I've seen a 300. one or two in 300. Wow. Well, if anybody else has this beat out there, uh, drop us a line too. I want to know. So something I didn't know is that patients with end-stage renal disease who haven't had regular dialysis treatments in a few days can have elevated procalcitonin's level without an infection. We've got a solid chart we will link in the show notes. Some that are concerning for the ICU provider are pancreatitis, prolonged cardiogenic shock, multi-system organ dysfunction syndrome, autoimmune disorders, liver dysfunction or recent liver transplant, prolonged arrest and resuscitation, and rhabdomyolysis. So, like, every single ICU patient? Right. Yep. It makes it somewhat difficult to use in the ICU, given all those other patients. You can see why it really has no role in deciding to initiate antibiotics in the ICU based on how many confounders there are. Don't say all right. All right. No, don't say that. All right. You said it too many times. But I didn't say like Matthew McConaughey. (laughs) So we talked a ton about procalcitonin. So what do all the major guidelines say about it? The 2018 Surviving Sepsis Campaign and the 2016 IDSA Antimicrobial Stewardship Guidelines both give a weak recommendation for using serial procalcitonin levels to guide antibiotic discontinuation. As far as the IDSA, that's ID Society of America, and ATS, American Thoracic Society Guidelines, go, they mention in their 2016 HAP and VAP guidelines to not use procalcitonin to guide initiation of antibiotics. So reading through the literature some, it's probably because... There's almost zero evidence in the VAP world in particular about using procalcitonin to guide antibiotic initiation. They also mentioned that you can use procalcitonin to guide discontinuation of antibiotics as long as you have clinical criteria to go along with that, but they admit that that is a weak evidence, a weak recommendation. The CAP guidelines have not been refreshed. They are in process, and I assume that they will feature procalcitonin when they are redone. 
We will finish with a reminder of the FDA recommendations, which were expanded for procalcitonin in February of 2017. It is recommended to be used when starting and stopping antibiotics in community-acquired lower respiratory tract infections and stopped in sepsis. It was initially recommended to assess mortality in sepsis. So it's basically got four FDA recommendations. Starting and stopping antibiotics in community-acquired LRTIs, discontinuing in sepsis, and assessment of mortality in sepsis. All right. (laughs) (laughs) We've covered a ton about procalcitonin, but let's see if we can summarize that a little bit for our listeners. Procalcitonin. It's made by the body naturally, but we don't know why it's used in healthy patients. Procalcitonin exists in healthy patients. We don't know its function. But in patients with infections, it's produced by lots of different types of tissues. It's downregulated in viral infections, so the number tends to be lower than in bacterial infections. It begins to be elevated somewhere around six hours after infection and peaks at 24 to 48 hours. Remember that in lower respiratory tract infections like community-acquired pneumonia, bronchitis, and COPD exacerbations, procalcitonin has been shown to reduce antibiotic days, and in some meta-analyses, it can even affect mortality, i.e. reduce it. The procalcitonin guidelines to remember is that in procalcitonins of less than 0.1, antibiotics are strongly discouraged. For 0.1 to 0.25, antibiotics are discouraged. For procalcitonins greater than 0.25, they are encouraged. And for procalcitonins of greater than 0.5, bacterial infection is very likely and antibiotics are very strongly encouraged. Just to clarify, is that in every single disease or is that only in lower respiratory tract infections? That's specifically for lower respiratory tract infections. Gotcha. There's some data, and it's FDA approved, to use in deciding to initiate antibiotics in lower respiratory tract infections, but that classic patient with unexplained dyspnea, it's not the right patient to let procalcitonin guide you alone. In sepsis, procalcitonin is a valuable risk assessment score, particularly if procalcitonin is above 2. Remember that it has even been incorporated into certain protocols like the Merrick protocol, which has not yet been validated, but is in process. Also in sepsis, it can be used to discontinue antibiotics when you get below a level of 0.5, but not when deciding to initiate antibiotics. It's approved primarily for use in the hospital and ED. There are some economic and feasibility studies for outpatient, but it doesn't seem ready to be prime time. And remember... There are plenty of things that can elevate your procalcitonin that have nothing to do with a bacterial infection. So make sure you're familiar with those, and be skeptical if you see a really high procalcitonin. And that's it. Wow. We kind of learned a lot. Thanks, literature. That's great. Thanks, literature. (laughs) I hope the listeners did, too. Until next time, keep breathing, keep streaming, and keep reading. And order a procalcitonin. (laughs) 